There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. Today I have with me the titan of nuclear, the man who has decided that the way to learn the most about nuclear is to talk to everyone he can find. Brett Kugelmas, welcome. Rod, thanks so much for having me back. You you still need to introduce yourself as the original podcaster in the nuclear space who I learned a ton from, and I just can't thank you enough for all the work that you put in before I even came around. Well, you know what they say, don't don't brag about yourself, let others do the bragging for you. <laughs> there you go. It's it is encouraging to me that that many things are starting to change. People are recognizing that scale doesn't necessarily mean the largest unit you can possibly build and uh there's there are lots of other ways to develop scale because there is an economy of of being a big uh provider. But you don't have to do it with giant units. I think that you and your company is trying to do it with pretty small units. Tell us a little bit about Last Energy. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess the last time that we spoke, um, yeah, there was no real conception of a commercial entity from the work that we had done. But, you know, over time... You know, our work has evolved. We started off, you know, Energy Impact Center doing just basic climate and energy research, uh, doing a deep dive on nuclear with the Titans of Nuclear podcast taking some of our initial learnings through the Open 100 project, where we got to collaborate with utilities and engineering firms and put together our own techno-economic analysis of what it would be like to take a 100-megawatt standard PWR and put it together with traditional construction. And we took that around to the utilities, and we got a ton of great feedback and continued to learn about modularity and some of the supply chain and labor advantages there. And just as time progressed and, you know, we saw the commercial interest and, you know, I kept giving talks uh, at universities and, you know, advising governments on on their SMR roadmaps. And it seemed like everyone was saying the same thing, uh, but not too many people were doing it or they were adding on something that I thought put their projects at risk. So, like, the basic consensus in the industry for a decade now has been small modular reactors okay so you take you, you take what the standard technology is at least that was my interpretation and you shrink it down and then you apply modular construction techniques that the oil and gas industry has pioneered uh, and that's how you deliver your systems in order to reduce specialty trade labor in field and move it into a factory setting where you can have higher throughput lower um, risk of uh, uh, lower uh, risk of your capital that you are typically borrowing money on before you're producing energy, lower risk of that either being extended the period of time or the rates increasing. So that was like the basic concept that I, I didn't figure out. That was like the, what the industry had figured out. Um, but then when the, all the implementations that we saw were either not small, so doing you know many hundreds of megawatts and above, uh, or not modular, or they threw some new material or fuel source or supply chain risk or constructability risk in there that might have wiped out all of the advantages of going just small and just modular with standard technology. And so that became the founding thesis of Last Energy was create a a commercial spinoff of the research work that we had done to build small, modular, standard right? Standard PWR. So no new nuclear innovation, no new chemistry, no new fuels, like literally full length fuel bundles, sub 5% enriched. Um, Just nothing special other than just applying good modularization and constructability practices. Last Energy is is going to produce small, 20 megawatt electric. Is that what I'm I'm reading? 20 megawatt electric. Exactly right. Okay. And when you you talk about uh, standard components. Who else uses pressure vessels that have to withstand 2,000? I think 2,500 actually is a test uh, pressure for uh, PWRs. Tell us a little bit about where you're going to get your pressure vessels from a standard supplier. Yeah. So 
pressure vessels are made by hundreds of suppliers. I mean, thousands, if you know, you look at all mm-hmm. shapes and sizes around the world. Um, ones that are our size, which are just, you know, a little over two meters in, in diameter. And there are hundreds of suppliers that are qualified according to ASME Section 8 standards. And then, you know, you can look at um, ASME Section 3 for their nuclear uh, qualifications. And you can then, you know, combine them together essentially to produce what is a standard pressure vessel mm-hmm. that meets the pressure requirements um, that you specify. So like, you know, I always use the word like off the shelf. Okay, well, like uh, I should clarify, pressure vessels are not like literally off the shelf. There's not like an inventory of pressure vessels, your exact size just sitting somewhere, (laughs) but they are standard and quote unquote off the shelf in the sense that there is an ASME code book. And if you specify the dimensions, you have all of the um, thicknesses and performance obligations and testing obligations that a qualified shop will deliver that standardized product to you, even though, yes, it could be unique in the sense that it is one inch different than another pressure vessel that has been produced or that the portholes are in slightly a different area. Uh, But we still feel comfortable calling it standard just because this is done like tens of thousands of times a year for all sorts of applications in similar um, pressure and temperature. The companies that produce those have the standard tooling necessary to produce all the customizations that might be needed, making sure they've got the ports in the right place, piping connections, flanges, all that stuff. They can they can do that with the right drawings and specifications, right? Yeah. It's just like, it's almost like, you know, when you go to a hardware store to get a can of paint, um, I would call that a standard off-the-shelf can of paint, even though the colors you select and the exact quantity is of like red, green, yellow, whatever they mix in there might mm-hmm. be unique to you. I'm still calling that a standard off-the-shelf can of paint. This is the same thing. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. Now, how about the heads? It, that's one of the things that's a little bit different, at least, about the pressure vessel for a PWR. You've got all these connections and penetrations at the head of the reactor for control rods and instruments and all that stuff. Is that something that's also relatively common in the pressure vessel world? The heads and the ports, yes. The control rod, um, the CRDM control rod drive mechanism, like attachment fittings, that's more just for nuclear. But once again, we're sticking to standard PWR, pressurized water reactor equipment. So mm-hmm. it's literally the exact same control rod drive mechanisms that you see in, you know, 300 uh, operating PWRs around the world today. Literally the same size, same configuration, everything. So how many assemblies are you going to put in there? They're going to be full length. So I assume they're not as many assemblies as there would be for a thousand megawatt reactor. Yeah. I want to be just careful about like export control and sensitivities oh. around that. So I'm just going to say like what we're, t- what we put in our IAEA SMR handbook report, I think the mm-hmm. numbers we put are like 12 to 24. So mm-hmm. I feel comfortable saying that without like, right. Um, you know, putting ourselves in hairy uh, territory in terms of like, Brett, tell me what your path has been to get into nuclear. You aren't a nuclear engineer. No, no. Um, uh, barely an engineer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I started off as a mechanical engineer. I did a master's at Stanford in robotics. Uh, started one of the early drone technology companies. I raised venture capital, ran that for five years, sold it in 2017. And then, you know, that was around the time that climate became an ever-pressing concern we crossed 400 ppm and i was like all right now's the time i've got the time the resources to like really take a stab at doing something important for the world and that's when i founded the energy impact center um just myself at first then hired some consultants then hired a few employees and found nuclear saw that it was just totally misunderstood totally under leveraged and just from like a first principles basis realized this was gonna have to be the foundation for any future civilization to have an abundant clean energy future. And that's when I launched the Titans of Nuclear podcast to learn more. And the rest is history. Yeah, I think one of the things that the nuclear industry needs more of are are people with the startup and company building experience that you have. Because as I've told my colleagues, sometimes to their dismay, that there really are plenty of nuclear engineers in the nuclear engineering in the nuclear industry. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing that I pulled away most from my previous, especially like 
frontier tech, hardware tech background um, is change as little as possible. Every little thing that you do, even if you think it's a minor change, you know, oh, it's a, it's a new alloy, but it's so, it's so similar to other alloys. Okay. Well, it's like, who knows how to weld that alloy? Is there like a robust history of like performance and welding standards for that alloy? Uh, how do you check the corrosion rates? How do you check the corrosion rates under radiation? Like there's just so many, or like the, you know, the uh, strength properties under radiation for how long, like there's just so many little things that go into every little change that you make to the physical world. And, you know, I learned that lesson, you know, a very difficult and, and painful experience, you know, with my previous startup, it's like every time, you know, you want to do something a little bit original, a little bit unique. Like just the amount of engineering and certification that's required is just it becomes like just uh, I mean it becomes like overwhelming, um, and th- and this is that whole thing about like paper react you know like the nuclear industry always talks about oh paper reactors paper reactors it's not because nuclear physics doesn't work the nuclear physics works like there's no doubt it's just all the other little things in terms of like supply chain and hidden costs uh, that become absolute nightmares and. So, I, you know, I took that experience away from my first startup in the hardware space, and that became one of just like the driving design criteria for Last Energy is nothing new, like no new material science, no new chemistry, no new reactor physics, you know, nothing in the supply chain that isn't currently operating in hundreds of power plants around the world. As a developer of 20 megawatt facilities, tell us a little bit, what, what, who's your customer base? Who are going to buy these reactors and yeah so we're starting off with a pretty niche market um we're focused just on europe we're focused primarily on industrial off takers behind the meter that are under 100 megawatts worth of consumption so they might have up to five of our 20 megawatt plants but then this keeps us out of the territory of like competing for contracts with let's say the new scales of the world or um or the ge's of the world or the rolls royces of the world we let them tackle the bigger power consumers and we're like just going after a niche market uh that there isn't really any other competition for that's that's been our our business go-to-market strategy when do you intend to seek licensing even in the uh, foreign markets that you're going to everybody's got their own licensing regime that you have to go through yeah we're currently um engaged with regulators in uh, the united kingdom in Poland and in Romania. We're in various stages of engagement with them. You know, some you might call it pre-licensing, others more formally in the licensing process. Uh, the more that we work with regulators, the more we realize that distinction is more of a gray area um, than like mm-hmm. a, formal, um, a formal, miles, uh, formal milestone. Uh, but yeah, we've been actively engaged with those three regulators for over six months now, in the case of the UK, for almost a year at this point. Um, and I feel like we're making good progress. Do you think that licensing your small PWRs is going to be easier than licensing something other than a light water reactor? I don't know. I mean, one of the good things about the UK framework is they've got these like safety assessment principles, which in theory out are like technology agnostic. And that maybe comes from their history of operating, you know, a uh, fleet of gas reactors and then also having experience with um, pressurized water reactors as well. You know, in the case of Romania, they've got experience with uh, heavy water reactors, the can-do type. And then in Poland, their experience is more with, um, it's one of the research reactor, the Maria reactor. So in in all of these cases, I think that the regulators are quite competent of assessing different types of technologies. I think that the, the bigger advantage that they have in terms of assessing our technology is just it's not like the reactor type. It's like the lack of newness. We're just applying the same codes and standards that you know the industry is extremely familiar with. We're not doing anything too novel. Um, for us, really, all of our innovation comes down to deliverability. So that's like constructability in the business model. And we're just trying to do mm-hmm. as little new as possible when it comes to anything uh, that the regulators uh, really have to assess. Other than just the fact that we are so small means our decay heat to, you know, material envelope ratios are just so much more advantageous. So there's like, it's not like we're trying to convince them about, you know, very small or tight margins to make our case. Like the margins that we have are just so ridiculously over the top 
it should make it a lot mm -hmm. simpler from that perspective, even though we're not doing anything new. Have your engineers done any uh, forward-looking analysis of the kind of waste production that you might have in your small reactor? There's been a couple of papers released recently that are uh, attempting to claim that small reactors are going to produce a significantly greater amount of both fuel waste and uh, activated material waste from pressure vessels. Have you guys taken a look at that? Well, I mean, let's just like think about this, that question more philosophically first. Even if you were to double a negligible amount, it's still a negligible amount. And so I think everyone needs to like take that in perspective first. Like the nuclear industry produces virtually no waste period, end of story. And the reason that people are afraid of or hesitant around the waste handling management living near it has actually nothing to do with the technical merits, but rather how we communicate, you know, what nuclear waste is to those stakeholders. And so it really does not matter like how much or how little you have of it when it's not a technical problem, it's a communication challenge. Agreed with that as a matter of a communication challenge, but for the utilities that actually have to do something to uh, address their waste, they have to spend money to build a dry storage uh, parking lot, or they have to figure out how to move activated steam generators, uh, activated pressure vessels. These have been real world problems that actually cause a fair amount of expense. And the more waste you have, the higher the expense is. Uh, so, you know, until we have somehow better communicated to the public that this waste should be handled more routinely, the amount does matter, doesn't it? I don't know. I think it's like roughly everywhere you go around the world, you put a dollar megawatt hour into a fund um, as you're producing the power, and then that goes to handle uh, waste handling and decommissioning. And that amount of money, you could be twice or half as efficient. That amount of money should be more than enough to cover it. And if it's not, it's because of mismanagement of that money. It's not because moving radioactive material is actually that hard or expensive. Yeah. and. As you say, if it's a dollar a megawatt hour produces a fair amount of money, that's what we charged utilities in the U.S. and built a bank of $45 billion exactly. for a dollar a megawatt hour. Uh, $2 a megawatt hour is still not really a significant uh, change in the overall price of the electricity. Yep, exactly. But even so, a dollar a megawatt hour should be more than sufficient. Like you were saying, $45 billion. It's It's really not that difficult to move around. Uh, irradiated material that's like fully encapsulated. It's just not that hard. It's not that difficult. It's not that hazardous. We can apply an unlimited expense if we use regulatory capture to like insist on like a crazy level of procedures and, you know, crazy levels of, um, you know, minimizing activation of material. I mean, if like, if we're willing to be totally unreasonable, we can spend infinite amounts of money. I think historically Absolutely. that's what the nuclear industry has done. Well. Some people in the nuclear industry love to spend unlimited amounts exactly. of money. Yeah, that's their business because model. Because yeah. <laughs> one man's cost is another man's revenue. Exactly. I mean, like, why does Fukushima cost $200 billion to clean up? It's like, it's, it's, not, it's not that expensive. It's not that complicated. But someone is making $200 billion, and that's mostly people providing, like, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's the nuclear industry. It's like nuclear construction companies, nuclear cleanup companies, nuclear robotics companies nuclear analysis companies, nuclear water treatment facility companies. So like, yeah, I mean, the reason that uh, Fukushima is quote unquote hard to clean up is because it is a windfall for a part of the nuclear industry that their incentives are not aligned with creating, you know, cheap, clean, abundant power. They're incentivized to have ever more radiation cleanup. Yeah. That same, the same philosophy exists as to why are we spending $3 billion a year to clean up the Hanford Reservation? Yeah, it's wild. That's you know, it's, it's, it's wild. But it's a windfall it, for the companies that are doing it. Right. And it's a protected stream of revenue for the state, which is why uh, Senator Cantwell is so adamant that we need to, we need to keep cleaning up Hanford uh, with an increasing budget every year. Sure. I mean, listen, let's, let's go everywhere and let's just dig, pay people to dig holes and fill them back up again. Why not? Sounds, <laughs> sounds like a great idea, Rod. <laughs> we used to talk about the diggers and fillers when I was going to school.
it always seemed like somebody was digging a hole and somebody else was filling it back in. Exactly. I know, but that, yeah. I mean, that's not just the nuclear and this, like we shouldn't be, I mean, I think that, that, that kind of a bad behavior occurs across so many industries. I mean, I'm not an expert in those industries, but like, it seems a lot like what we're doing with like ethanol production also, you know, using a ton of, ton of fossil fuels to make ethanol to mm-hmm. fossil fuel. I mean, it's like, what's going on there? Will your machines be manufactured in your target markets? Or are they going to be something that are going is going to be exported from the U.S. or some mix of the two? Some mix of the two. We're starting off with manufacturing the nuclear components in Europe and then the balance of plant in Texas and having them meet. Now, when you say balance of plant, what is where does the boundary go? Is that after the steam generator? Yeah. Yeah, the steam generator, then there's a bulkhead, and that separates your nuclear island and your containment in the nuclear island from the uh, rest of the power plant, exactly. Okay, so the pressure vessel and the steam generators would be in the nuclear part, and that would be manufactured somewhere in Europe. Is that what I'm understanding you're saying? Yeah, we are, yeah, things that are designated as nuclear components are being um, manufactured outside the U.S., um, uh, so we don't have to work with the um, export control uh, paradigm of shipping nuclear uh, components from the U.S. to outside the U.S. Any issue with the export controls for intellectual property? You know, it's one of the things that always confused me about export controls (laughs) because it seemed like you would have to go through Part 810, even if you were selling a valve that was useful in a steam plant uh, because it somehow got a nuclear pedigree. Yeah, so our... um... Our initial uh, criteria, our like business model criteria, was to only work with Part 810 generally, you know, Appendix A, generally authorized uh, countries. Okay. Um, and so our target markets, Romania, Poland, UK, all fall within uh, within that scope. And so what we do is we file our uh, generally authorized notifications to the NNSA whenever we transfer. Um, even potentially um, nuclearized intellectual property from our entity to another entity. Now, all of the markets that you've mentioned, uh, Romania, the UK, and Poland, have other nuclear companies uh, and other nuclear announcements. I guess, uh, of course, EDF is big in the UK and then Rolls-Royce. And in the in Poland, there's they've announced AP-1000s and also looking at X-Energy high-temperature reactors for industrial use. Romania, as you mentioned, has can-do reactors. They may even try to get more can-do reactors, but they're also looking at new scales. Are these competitors to you, or are you guys cooperating because your power plants are really serving different customers? Yeah, like yeah, we're a rising tide floats all boats. Uh, like I am happy to and try to, as much as I can, promote every other nuclear company as well. And we just figured it was easier so we can all, you know, do a little bit more like hold hands and help each other for us to just pick a niche market where we were not competitive. And so, yeah, we really only focus on customer applications that are under 100 megawatts or maybe up to 200 megawatts in some cases. But we stay away from anything that might be potentially competitive uh, with the other companies that are also trying to go to market in that space. And that's so we can have a great relationship and help each other and work together on you know, policy reform or just general stakeholder communication. Yeah, I imagine that the, all of you would cooperate on things like training, on getting welders qualified, on interactions with the public so that there's more and more comfort with nuclear technologies. Is that a good assessment? Yeah, I mean, I learned a very similar lesson in my last company as well. It's like, you never know who's going to be like, you know, don't treat people as your competitors, because every competitor is just a future potential partner. As businesses evolve and technologies and companies mature, people tend to like, find different niches, or different like, sub products to be serving, they really feel like, you know, figure out that like that is their forte. And so it's good to like remain on good cooperative terms with everyone, even perceived competitors, because like, you know, two, three, four, five years from now, you don't know if that's going to be a company that's going to be like an incredible partner, an incredible supplier for you. So better just to like, you know, divorce any like emotional uh, connection of, you know, oh, I hate them because they're my competitor or they're costing (laughs) us business or money and just say, hey, 
everyone's a, a potential future partner and look for things that you can collaborate on together now. I learned at one company that I worked at before that not only are they potential future, future partners or future uh, suppliers, but they're also future customers. Yeah, yeah. Great point. Great point. Know, they, they may actually be buying stuff from you yeah, totally. because your products will fit something that, that they can't necessarily provide. Yep. You know, if they've got a customer that needs 400 megawatts and their reactor is a 300 megawatt reactor, um, they don't want to build two of them or their customer won't want two of them. But anyway, it's just a little bit of math going on. No, um, no, totally. I mean, listen, I mean, there's just so many different like business model arrangements that any two companies can have everything from like licensing deals to sales channel partnerships. I mean, it gets like, you know, it's like this factorial tree that gets increasingly complex. And so once again, just best to be opportunistic and be open-minded towards any sort of relationship that you can have with someone in your sector. In your the design of your 20 megawatt power plant, do you have two loops, four loops? What What is the arrangement? Single loop, single loop plant. Single loop. Yep. Okay, single so there's only plant. one steam generator? Yep, just one. Yeah, it's not that much energy. No, it's not. Um, and it's probably, and it's not one of those power plants where co continuity of power is so vital. You do double, make sure you have two of everything so you can get by with just half of it operating. Yeah, I mean, when was, <laughs> when was the last time that someone lost one loop but not the other? Um, I mean, well, yeah, maybe if you're doing some like strategic maintenance type stuff. But on shore-based power plants, true. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. All right, good point, good point, good point, good point. Yeah. Good when point. you're underwater, you don't want to have the possibility of losing your entire power plant. Yeah, if you yeah. Can help it. You, you try to minimize that. Yeah, I forgot. Although the funny thing is we, we always thought our reactor was so darn reliable that we only needed one of those. <laughs> I forgot I was talking to a Navy nuke. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the heat source is, is, I mean, fission works. It just, and it keeps poking along, um, you know, without much effort in the physics actually controls it which is a, just an amazing thing to me you don't I have know. to i know it's just it's so amazing it's, it's still one of the biggest misconceptions out there uh amongst not i wouldn't say like lay people but let's say people who think they're extremely technically proficient but like mm -hmm. you know are just like science enthusiasts the the one the one thing that they are like they tend to they hear pressurized water reactor and they think oh my god pressure and then they get afraid of pressure and then, like, you know, they think, oh, control rods are, are governing the reaction the whole time. What if the control rods doesn't work? And, and they don't realize that, no, 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 like the moderator, the water, according to, like, you know, three different mechanisms of feedback, you know, temperature, mm -hmm. positive void coefficient, and Doppler effect, it's like a self-governing reaction. Water, I mean, water reactors are just so amazing from, like, a controls perspective. You don't have to do anything. Like, Enrico Fermi did all the hard work, you know, early on you know, just helping us figure out, you know, <laughs> how these reactors stay critical. Uh, and then since then, like, like there's just not that complicated controls for a water-based reactor. No, there's, there isn't. Matter of fact, under most circumstances, you can vary power quite a bit without ever touching your control rods. Yeah, totally. That's why I, I have... Boiling water reactors do that at end of life, right? To like milk a lot of extra energy. They just vary the temperature. Uh, there are other, yeah, there's other reactors besides boiling water reactors that will do that to, to get a little bit out. Because, as you said, there is a negative temperature coefficient of reactivity. Yeah. So if you can't stay critical at the temperature you normally operate, well, you can stay critical at a lower temperature. Yep. Yep. You just have a lower pressure steam and a little bit yep. lower efficiency of your steam plant. Yep. And, oh. and so you can go a little bit, a little further without, you know, there's no real hard stop like your tank is empty so it's just it's a slowdown yeah. and i think that i think they even call it the coast down as uh pwrs get close to refueling if they've used up most of their uh actual fissile material they will coast down and end up not stopping the plant till they get to be about 75 or 80 percent power uh as their limit yep that's our plan too Good, good. Now, so your uh, refueling cycle, I assume, is going to be something similar to the 18-month to two-year cycle that is common. That's is that a little correct? bit different, actually, for us. We go um, six years. Uh, we like to think that we're not violating our own rule about nothing too innovative because fuel assemblies 
do tend or they can stay in a reactor for six years. We mm -hmm. just lose the efficiency of shuffling. But what that enables us to do is have less human engagement with activated material, which we think makes just for uh, an easier licensing case. Not that I think that there's a safety concern. It just mm -hmm. makes it easier from a licensing perspective. Well, it also reduces the amount of downtime you have if you can go six years without refueling. Yeah, we still might have because we're not like, you know, these utilities today are like freaking machines and how good they are with their mm -hmm. outages. We're not going to be there for quite a while. I mean, they're just so good. They run these things like, you know, military operations or like football operations. I've watched some of it. It's just awesome. Um, yep. We're not going to be that good. So even though we are taking it offline, you know, uh, you know, a third as many times, it might still be three times as long that we're offline in the beginning, but we're still anticipating like a 95% uptime overall. Okay. And I assume from what you just said that your cores are going to re be replaced in whole, not just partial assembly replacement. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we throw out the whole reactor, the control rods, everything. Like once, once something becomes activated in our system, no one ever touches it again. Um, and we just, drop in a new a whole new uh, reactor a whole new reactor setup okay so i imagine you pull your assembly up into some sort of shielded container we pre-shield the, pre the whole thing to begin with everything like we've like essentially designed end of life um structure around it at the beginning mm -hmm. of life okay and it doesn't need to go into a cooling pool the vessel itself becomes the cooling pool Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. It's a little Did... bit different in terms of like an operational modality and, it, you know, it gives me pause as well, but, but it, you know, like we spend a lot of time thinking through these issues and we really don't want to do anything new, mm -hmm. but in areas where it's not a new component and maybe it's just a new operating modality, but it seems, you know, to, to not, you know, be our like risk metrics um put any risk in terms of like system performance operation completion licensing anything like that uh then we then we're comfortable moving forward with it so it's innovative in some senses but we really are trying like i try to drive this message home as much as possible we're trying to not be as not innovative as possible but you will keep some amount of used fuel on site or do you have to actually move it away from site every six years um, no, end of life, end of life, uh, then it gets moved. So during the decommissioning, that's the first time that you're really going to be moving uh, activated material. Okay. And your design life is 40 years? or 42 like years that? because of the six-year cycles. Okay. I'm sure by the time 40 years rolls around, <laughs> people are going to want to do all sorts of interesting extensions and repurposing. That's not my problem. Let's see, 40 years from now, yeah, you probably won't have to worry too much about it. <laughs> Although you're a pretty young guy, you may, you'll may you probably be retired by then. Yeah, but, you know, who knows? Maybe there'll be a skydiving accident or something. <laughs> Are you a skydiver? No, no, just in my mind, just a fantasy. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> it's on your, your bucket list, maybe? <laughs> on my, yeah, it's on my list. Paragliding or skydiving or something like that. So do you personally spend a lot of time over in Europe these days? Yeah, I'm there every other month for at least a week, sometimes two weeks. And do you have offices in each of the countries you're talking about? Yep, we have subsidiaries. We've got um, general managers that are like, you know, our subsidiary CDO, um, CEOs that are excellent and you know run most of the day-to-day -day operations and interface with, you know, you know local representatives and uh, local stakeholders, uh, but then obviously, you know, collaborate you know, really closely with um, HQ here in the U.S., in Washington, D.C. Do you have any, do your customers have any concerns about owning and operating nuclear plants? Are they willing to, to get into that business themselves, or do they prefer to have somebody else do that work for them? Uh, th thank you for that clarification. So our business model is we are a utility. We're an IPP, an independent power producer. Uh, and so what we do is we build, own, and operate the units. We then, you know, for to simplify it, we just hook a power cable up to our customers and totally abstract the generation component from them. So it's as if they are receiving power from their local substation, but instead they receive power uh, from us and we make it that whole process invisible to our customers. So all they're doing is signing a long-term PPA, power purchase agreement. 
Do you also intend to sell heat? Because industrial customers sometimes want their power in a form that's not electricity. Yes, uh, this is a good one. So we've designed our plant such that we have the ability to deliver heat as well. And so we essentially have left the capabilities to hook up a heat exchanger such that we can run our um, steam through the heat exchanger and then be able to deliver, you know, a process fluid to our customers if they so desire. It would be an external loop. So at no point would it impact like the design of our facility. It's not like we're going to be running like our, you know, our, our tertiary loop, uh, hot water out of the facility and then back again. Um, we want to maintain that, that separation from our customers. But through a heat exchanger, yes, we could theoretically deliver heat and we're planned for it. But in our early applications, we're following like the keep it simple, stupid approach. So uh, the first one, the customers will just be electricity. So this sounds almost like you have a, a plan to have a, an ability to add a module or add an option to your plants, depending on what the customer wants. And I assume if you have that kind of connectivity, you could add a, an option that does desalination or hydrogen production or some other type of, of uh, production like that. Yeah, but I want that to be someone else's business, not ours. Like our business is going to be maniacally focused on, you know, doing one thing, you know, cost effectively. <laughs> so it's going to be about like scaling up our production of this extremely stupid, dumb system rather than adding on a lot of features. But we'll make it, you know, like, you know, like somebody could develop a piece of code with an API such that other people can you know, do that work and create their own incredible businesses. We'll make mm -hmm. that available um, to other companies to do. Okay, so you'll have some sort of connections available mm -hmm. at some that'll be used at some point down the road. Exactly. Okay. Now, mentioning that, you, or you mentioned that you have the nuclear production is going to happen in Europe. Is there going to be a single place of production and sell all your European customers from the same place? or there's going to be separate production facilities in different places? Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, and that is a lot of the work that we focus on, which is like su like supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a combination of, of what you mentioned in that we are going to have you know, nuclear qualified fab component fabricators at their own shops doing their own thing in some cases where they have integration capabilities, integrating them into larger packages, in other cases, moving them to uh, a, a third-party integrator in country that packages up in a way that can connect pretty seamlessly to the rest of the facility that will deliver to site. One of the challenges that affected Vogel was that the AP1000 was sold as a modular plant <laughs> where they could produce modules in a place like Lake Charles, Louisiana, and ship them to Georgia and have them integrate into the plant seamlessly. How are you, is your uh, project going to be different from that? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the problems with the nuclear industry is they've like bastardized the word modular. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you want to do modular, do what the oil and gas industry does. They've been perfecting this for 20 years. That's not what Vogel did. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm very happy that like gigawatt scale plants are being built. Um, mm -hmm. Like, valiant efforts, a lot of people, a lot of hard work. So, please, no one at Vogel or is working on the Vogel project. Take this as like a criticism. But it, it's not modular. Okay, I'm sorry. It's just not modular. I love that you're building it, but it's not modular. Um, so what we do is we follow the best practices and even hire the same fabricators and integrators from the oil and gas and chemical industries that do this all day, every day, which essentially is doing prefab skid units that connect up together on site. Whatever Vogel did, is they called modular? Uh, I don't know. I just, sorry, it's not modular. <laughs> so did you hire a, uh, a number of oil and gas engineers to help you with your project? Oh, yeah. I mean, other than the people who design uh, our, the nuclear components in our facility, every other single person that works at our company is outside the nuclear industry and most of them from the oil and gas industry. 
I mean, that even goes down to like the people on our financing team. We don't hire nuclear financing people. We hire oil and gas financing people, uh, other component engineers, other systems integrators, other process engineers. It's all oil and gas. How big is your company now? 50 people now, um, three subsidiaries, have a couple of people in each, um, and then split about half engineers, half something related to government affairs uh, for the rest of the team. Do you have an uh, estimate on when your first unit is going to be built and then when it's going to be operated? We are targeting 2025 uh, to have it up and running. We are already starting to build certain components and uh, certain modular skid uh, metal frameworks right now. So technically, we're already under construction. We're just kind of taking that capital risk off of our Topco's balance sheet. Um, and then, uh, yeah, by the time by the time we get our license, which is hopefully going to be in 2025 in one of those three countries, then we'll just start shipping all of the components there and then a few month assembly window. So we're hoping, yeah, before 2025 is over, that will be the first one up and running. As a small plant, it seems to me that you might be able to avoid some of the integration challenges of things like seismic qualification. Can you talk about your site requirements? Seismic is interesting. I mean, there's amazing things that you can do in the seismic world, even if you are in high seismic areas, to essentially isolate your system from your environment. Um, mm -hmm. Pulling on that word "isolate," you know, there there are these devices called you know base isolation systems, or like you know elastomeric systems, I believe that they're called. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all sorts of devices that you can use to deal with seismic qualifications. I think yes, the size plays a role in how your system responds to certain seismic conditions, but the shape also does, the distribution of weight also does. And then, you know, this is why we hire great structural engineers uh, to design, uh, you know, first for our anticipated uh, seismic conditions. And then, you know, we essentially tell our business team, hey, like here are the areas that, you know, you can sell your units to based on the seismic qualifications that we're looking at. Um, but once again, we do not do custom engineering. Uh, we're trying to build the same thing every single time. So, uh, you know, so it's like we have certain seismic, a certain seismic envelope that we fall under. But that's, you know, that's what we're going to be delivering towards. And worse comes to worse in the future, then we can add some base isolation uh, mm -hmm. if we need to to achieve uh, other other geographies. So you basically tell your customers this is what seismic envelope you need to be able to handle so you find a site that, that meets that requirement yep you can have any color as long as it's black <laughs> i guess you may be allowing some somebody else to take on this business but it sounds to me like your units would be right sized for a ship or barge our units could definitely fit on a ship or a barge that's not our business model though and i'm like quite wary of taking on challenges of the ocean <laughs> it's like i don't know like everything from salt water to you know how systems perform when they're like rocking around that would make me very nervous having no experience in that industry at some point yeah we could hire a bunch of people to like advise us to see if it's possible if there's a compelling business model for it but for now yeah it'd be very easy to like load our whole system on a barge for transport purposes, but not for like power barge generation purposes in the near future. Yeah, well, that's why I said it would be somebody else's business. They would come to you and say, Last Energy, we want to buy four of your units and we're going to put them someplace where we're not going to tell you exactly where we're going to put them because we don't know because it's going to be floating somewhere. It could be hard from a licensing perspective too. I'd probably just say, Hey, like come back to me in five years, you know, and maybe we'll talk about it. Yeah, well, it's definitely hard for a licensing perspective in the U.S. because our regulator can't figure out how to license something that doesn't have a site. There really is no pathway. Yeah, but then I think also like the other part that's challenging about that, just strictly like from a licensing perspective, is you know you demonstrate to a regulator how your system performs under a certain like environmental envelope. So like we were just talking about seismic, but like there are other, you know, characteristics that are important as well, you know, when maybe like groundwater intrusion or maybe 
you know, soil conditions. You know, there's like so many other things that uh, might go into your um, safety case that have to do with the environment uh, that you surround yourselves in. Now, obviously, there's some other like, huge advantages, kind of like being out in the middle of nowhere in terms of like atmospheric dispersion models mm -hmm. uh, that you know are no brainer are going to be a lot easier if, if you put something on the water. But uh, yeah, I just be wary to take on too too many uncertainties strictly just from like a like a, a regulatory ease perspective. Tell us a little bit about your your long term business strategy, your financing. When are you when are you going to be the next publicly uh, available company? I guess X Energy just announced here doing a SPAC to become a public company and a new scale grabbed hold of the SMR moniker on the, on the stock exchange. What about last energy? I don't know. I mean, I think that question, you know, that's a common question, let's say like in the investing world. And I think maybe it harkens back to an era where there was like a real status symbol around going public. Like that's when you made it right. When you mm -hmm. went public, that's your like, validation point societally of what you've accomplished but from my perspective you know impact and being able to clean up our energy source and be able to provide abundant energy that's the real like metric of our success for a company and so to be like quite frank there are many different you know eventual uh financing models for the company but i'm just not actually spending that much time thinking about whether we're going to go public or stay private or how that all might play out. You've put yourself into a situation where you don't need to think about that for a while. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, we'll be raising private capital for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of founders do get themselves into a situation where they say, I got to go somewhere. I can't keep doing this for very long. Yeah. You got plenty of runway and, and got good acceptance. And and part of your your financing model, I would assume, would be using those PPAs as collateral. Totally. Totally. I mean, once again, like we try not to innovate. So we are just borrowing the same business model playbook from the rest of the energy industry. Uh, solar and wind and renewables have gotten really good at these using PPAs uh, to, to finance uh, or to like, to be able to project finance their, uh, their, their, their projects. Yeah. As long as the PPA customer is, got good credit there they can be quite valuable totally totally yeah like a, a government or a, a rate regulated utility company yep and some of the large industrials are pretty good too yep yeah large industrials are great as long as they're not large industrials that that may go bankrupt at any time yeah um, we like <laughs> credit worthy customers <laughs> well i'm just referring to there's some some large gas processors in the in the Europe that have had a significant hit on their economic models recently. I think there's other customers in that fertilizer producers and some metals producers and whatnot who've decided that their uh, excellent business model dependent on cheap gas is no longer viable. Yeah, that was a big mistake on their part. Yeah. All right, Brett, I'm going to offer you the opportunity to bring it home. What kinds of things would you like to share with the Atomic Show audience about your your progress and, and your excitement about bringing a, a new old thing to market? No, oh, yeah. I mean, it's been amazing. I mean, I think I've learned a tremendous amount from your audience, from my audience. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of questions have like gone into creating the design criteria for both the technology and the business model. Um, and so, you know, what we are producing is really the summation of like this, like global level of experience. It's like n not really like us just sitting in a closet, like coming up with some great idea. It's, it's, it's really like the community and everyone else that's like helped us get as far as we have today. Um, last, you know, this year, it was soon to be last year, uh, was, you know, a you know, really like runaway success for us. We got, you know, head of state endorsements across. Uh, Romania and Poland, um, you know, finished up, uh, you know, like FEL3 engineering work, have started production already, started sourcing major equipment. So it's just been like this like wild ride this year. It's been awesome. 
Um, and then we just launched a new website too. So if people want to find out more information and just kind of see some new imagery about the facility itself and learn a little bit more, and we're going to be continuing to update that too. So if you're curious, just always go to our website, lastenergy.com. Um, and yeah, and just another thank you to everyone who's helped me out along the way. And, um, and to, you know, my team right now, it's just like doing incredible work. It's just like an honor to be, to be working with my colleagues and, um, and this has just been yeah, just an awesome ride so far. And Brett, I need to thank you for all the effort you've put in the, the, your inspiring method of self-education by talking to everybody, listening carefully, learning the best and learning what to avoid. Uh, it, it is inspiring. It is uh, something that I've heard a few other people that are moving into nuclear via being a podcaster. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting path you've blazed, so I appreciate that. And I'm going to remind the audience that I'm talking with Brett Kugelmas, who is the founder of the Energy Impact Center, the creator of Titans of Nuclear Podcast, and now the CEO and president of Last Energy a company that has come up with a standard small pressurized water reactor, 20 megawatts electric and aimed at mainly the industrial market behind the meter. Is that a good summary, Brett? It's perfect. Thank you so much again, Rod. It's been awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. This episode of The Atomic Show is brought to you by Nucleation Capital. We're a venture capital fund focused on selecting ventures with extraordinary promise. They're building the advanced nuclear sector and helping expand our clean energy options. We're building a portfolio of ventures on behalf of investors like many of you. We don't just take funds from the large institutions that typically allocate to venture capital. We believe that regular investors should have access to the opportunities in modern nuclear for their own portfolios. We allow people to subscribe on a quarterly basis, starting as low as $5,000 per quarter. A four-quarter subscription will get you exposure to between four and six ventures. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about how you can participate, please check out our website at nucleationcapital.com. That's nucleationcapital, all one word, dot com. Our fund and all of the information you need to subscribe is available online. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Nucleation Insights, and join our pro-nuclear investor network to learn about select syndicated investment opportunities. If you have questions, we're happy to chat. Please spread the word. There's a way, a way, such a better way. Today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better way. Today, now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. The way is the Adam's way.